Welcome to the Profitable Steward Podcast with Jared Sorensen. In this series, we'll learn and explore regenerative agriculture principles. Through practices that improve soil health, animal health, and good stewardship, we are working to help you increase your productivity and profitability. Join us in learning from successful farm and ranch experts who share stories of growth from their fields to help your fields grow strong. Here is your host, Jared Sorensen. Welcome, everybody. We've got Kit Farrell here with us. We are very honored to have him as our guest speaker today. Um, After the last class that we had with Seth Itzkin, my wife and I visited, and uh, we know the plight of many of our fellow ranchers here in the West, that you're buried in snow, um, cold calves, a lot of calves are perishing, things are pretty tough, tough conditions all around. And And we thought, you know, who could speak to this? both from a fellow rancher standpoint who's probably been in the trenches, um, but also somebody who could offer a ray of hope and maybe uh, ways that we can adjust our operations so that we don't repeat the same mistakes and we're not guilty of that insanity of, of doing the same things over and over again and trying to get different results. Um, and and both Selena and I felt impressed that Kit Farrell would be the person to talk to. And so, as you know, this is a different schedule than we normally do on our second and fourth Thursdays. Um, we we thought this needed to be timely. It needed to come out. Obviously, there's nothing that we can do right now to uh, delay the gestation period of the cow. But we can adjust things in the future. And so we have we we may not have complete control over or any control over what the weather does, but we have control over certain things. And that's what we're going to talk about today is, is not only calving in sync with nature, but other principles that will lead to ongoing profitability, not just in the bad years when we're buried in snow, but in every year. And uh, Kit certainly has been an advocate for that. He's been uh, a paradigm breaker. He's been someone who is not afraid to swim upstream and push against the common beliefs taught um, and and accepted as truth. And it's not been an easy road. As I've started down this journey of teaching, um, the bigger your message is, the bigger target you are for the naysayers and for those people who are going to look for a target to shoot at. And I'm sure, you know, um, if we could, if we could see Kid, he's probably got many arrows in his back. And uh, he's certainly grateful that he's lived through all that and that he's willing to stand behind his mission and the message that he has and and also to to continue to share that with others. So, Kit, um, I didn't really read a bio. I don't know that anybody needs a bio for Kit Farrell. We know who you are. But uh, is there anything that is... Well, this is a trick question. I was going to say, is there anything unique about you? Is there anything that maybe the public doesn't know about you that might be something just a an interesting tidbit to add some humanity to who Kit Farrow is? You said you weren't going to ask any hard questions. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, there I go. Broke my rules. Yeah. Uh I don't know. And, and, you know, we, we came back to where we are now in uh, 1985. I'd been away from the agriculture, this part type of agriculture for 15 years. 
And I, you know, at that time I thought, okay, we're just going to, I'm going to show everybody around here. And this is the area I grew up in, not, not the exact area, but close. And I, I'm just going to show all these, these neighbors here, how to, how to do things. And I, you know, I just like everything else, I just about went broke trying to show everybody how to do things. But I've, I realized that, you know, in the 1980s, those of you who are old enough to remember the the goal at that time within the beef industry was to make cattle as big as you could, as quick as you could. And I had a few mentors. My dad was still alive. Chip Pines was alive. Uh, Don Palmer, a, a few others. That, and we would get together and we'd say, you know, this is ridiculous. You know, we're, the only thing we really want to maximize in this business is profit and happiness. Uh, trying to make cattle bigger, we couldn't see that working. And then it kind of dawned on me, you know, and again, I, I needed the support of this group. We, we called that our support group. Uh, without a support group, it's real hard to go against, swim against the, the, the flow. But I realized then that, you know, many things status quo wise are, are wrong. You know, what, what is status quo today was new and innovative maybe 50 years ago, but it's no longer new and innovative. So, and then I realized, you know, whether we're talking about religion or politics or ranching or, or just about anything, I'm pretty much anti-status quo in every area. And uh, I think that's, that's gotten a whole lot of arrows in my back. But at the same time, if you persevere, uh, it, uh, you will succeed. Because the status quo almost always, you know, it reaches a point where it, when it's at that point, it is the status quo. It's no longer where it needs to be. You know, what I'm doing and what we've been doing for the past 10 or 20 years is new to the status quo. Eventually, I perceive that what we're doing now is going to become status quo and we're going to have to be moving beyond. And this is something Chip Hines always liked to talk about. But you know, a lot of lessons are learned the hard way. I, I didn't, uh, uh, a lot of lessons I didn't have to learn because I had friends and I could see what was going on with other people. So, you know, I didn't have to do that. But, you know, this this calving out of sync with nature, uh, you know, my environment, we're a desert environment. So most years, you know, we don't get that much snow. And we say, well, you know, the weather's nice in January, February, whatever. Uh, we should be calving. And I never did calve that early. My dad had calved earlier when he was in business. And uh, basically, that's an April snowstorm broke his back. Not literally, but uh, at that point, he said, I can't take this anymore. You know, when you lose 25, 30, 40 percent of your calf crop in one, one major storm, he said, it's not worth it. I mean, he took like, he took that personal. And uh, I think a lot of people do. And that's why, you know, we're saddened by what's going on. But Chip Hines was always wants to say, study nature, do what nature, imitate nature. And I think calving, calving in sync with nature is, you know, that's, that's a no brainer once you see it. And we shouldn't have to go through a storm a year like this to see it. But most of us do. So, you know, I, I always tell people, you know, when, when do the deer have their babies? When do the elk have their babies? 
those sort of questions. When, when you study that, you know, you're going to see that uh, in most most of North America, you know, calving in sync with nature is going to be mid-May into the first of June. Uh, you know, the Mediterranean environment in California is different. The fescue environment in a, from Missouri to the west east coast is is different. Uh, calving in sync with nature is the same, but fescue has taken over that area. And when God created Missouri, there was no fescue. So, you know, our, our Missouri or fescue herds are all fall calving simply because of the type of grass that we're dealing with there. It's very toxic in the summertime. It's the best grass ever in the wintertime. So there, there are differences. I was surprised. A lot of people say, well, you know, I live in Colorado, so May is good for me. Uh, the farther south you go, maybe Texas or wherever, the, the earlier I can calve. And I said, well, look around and see when the deer have their babies. And if you get to Chihuahua and the El Paso area of, of Texas, you know, the smart producers are not calving until mid to late July there. That's the monsoon season. Uh, so that's when the deer have their babies. You, you know, so, you know, God has figured all this out and we just need to, you know, imitate what, what he's already told us. What what was it that put you on to later calving? I know... Um... Schools now are teaching that Dick Divin, the Ranching for Profit School, um, which Dick isn't is no longer with us, but he was a big advocate of that. Um, was it just something you figured out on your own at that time, or? Well, I think the group I was hanging out with at that time it was kind of a badge of honor to see who could be the laziest, and you know if if you can make this business work and be profitable without doing much work you know that was kind of our badge of honor but it, it was in the mid to late 1990s that don palmer uh 60 miles away from us fairly good sized rancher and friend of ours but he went to a dick divin school and uh at that point i was still you know i haven't had not been convinced my my thought was like everybody else's you know all of my late calves were dink calves and so I figured, okay, if I move my calving season, I'm just going to have a whole herd of dink calves. And that's that's not true. You know, no matter when you calve, your late calves are going to be dink calves. And that, that's it. But Don came back from the Dick Devon School. We had a, our little support group get together. We called them our bull sessions. And he says, you know, he kind of went through the reasons and why. And, and Don and John Palmer moved their calving season with their cows from the middle of March to the 1st of May. Uh, they started calving their heifers the 1st of June. And uh, all of this, you know, I said, okay, I'm, I'm not a pioneer. I'm gonna watch what they do and see how it works. And, and he kept good records, but you know, in, in one year they went, you know, they, they saved 70% of their, their feed and labor expenses by moving their calving from March to May. Uh, they got 90% of their calves born in 30 days. You know, when, when you're calving in March, you can't do that in, in most environments. Uh, we don't have green grass in March. We barely have green grass in May on a good year. Uh, other things that have happened since then that we picked up on, well, you know, maybe I need to back up and say, 
a lot of times I, I throw that out there that they move their calving season for the cows from the middle of March to the 1st of May for the heifers to the, the 1st of June. And I didn't say anything at the time, but I thought this Dick Divin must be an idiot. You know, what? every university is telling us to calve our heifers four weeks ahead of our cows. But I kept an open mind, or I tried to, and we were calving everything, cows, heifers. Our, uh, we were not calving our heifers at near the house. They were out with the cows. It was in April, like we would start around the 10th of April. And again, we would have to feed because we don't have anything growing in April. And, and dead grass isn't enough to uh, support a lactating cow. But I remember we were calving our cows and heifers together. A lot of our first calf heifers calved towards the front of the calving season. And that's, that's not abnormal. But I remember, and a lot of those heifers that calved toward the front of the calving season, you know, one year later, they came up over. They could not raise that calf in April and get bred back to have a calf the next year. Yeah. So I remember it was about the middle of May, maybe the 20th of May, we had a, a, a red heifer. I don't remember her number now, but I can see her plain as day. And she was towards the end of the calving season. She had a calf that day and she was fat. I just remember her being fat because it was towards the end of May. And uh, the next year she had the fifth calf. So, I mean, she went from calving last to the calving first. And the reason that works is because she had green grass before she calved. She was in good shape. No, you know, we didn't have to feed her to get her that way. That's, that's what makes that work. So, you know, Dick Devon knew things then that uh, most of us didn't know. Uh, at, but still at that time, you know, I had acquaintances that would say you know what you're trying to do get calving sync with nature have an adapted animal this and that why don't you just raise antelope i mean they're already <laughs> adapted and uh you know you're you're right I, I don't know how but but for the first probably 15 20 years i mean i was a big target for you know especially other seed stock producers we were thinking and doing things much differently so that, that's pretty much when we, when I saw what the Palmers were doing in the late 1990s, uh, you know, we started calving in May. Then I tell people that, uh, you know, if I ever had to go back to April calving, I would, I just, I, you know, I would sell the cows and go find something else to do or whatever. I, I can't, I can't do it. The other things we found out at that time is that we can get a high percentage of calves born in 30 days when you're in sync with nature. It just works that way. Uh, a couple other things is that we, we, we see very little predation. You know, there's the, the predators in the snowy months of March and April, they're looking for an easy, easy lunch. And a calf that's walked away from, that his mother's walked away from, you know, that's an easy lunch. In, in May, we, we don't even talk about it anymore. You know, the coyotes have something else to eat. Uh, it's just not an issue. Something else we noticed right quick was that uh, the number of malpresentations went from maybe 5% to zero. And I, I still don't understand that. But uh, uh, 
it, it we just never have to have to deal with it anymore you know unless it's a I don't know you know I'm not sure I know how to do that uh, I had a, a university guy in North Dakota, Dakota tell me one time it has to do with the photo period and uh, mm. you know it may have and you know calving in sync with nature very much has something to do with the photo period you know I think when it, hours it, of daylight. yeah hours of daylight yeah uh, we all have about the same hours of daylight uh, you know farther north you have you your days are longer farther south you have you know days are shorter in the summertime but anyway you know that was a i remember the heartache my dad had when he you know one one major storm wiped him out and uh and uh you know he that basically you go into depression and things like that when that happens I yeah mean, he, yeah he's ready to sell the cows he didn't want to do that anymore understandable i mean i i think we've all been there and i've shared on social media some of the things that have happened and and uh you know my suggesting that we perhaps look at calving in sync with nature has also brought down a little bit of wrath and thinking that i don't have empathy for my fellow ranchers which i absolutely do i mean we've been there we've had cattle and sheep die by the thousands literally um with some freak storms and things and so we know we know uh what that's like so were there any unintended consequences kit as you made that transition things that you um either positive or negative things you've talked about some of the positive but one of the well i guess i'll i'll follow that up any anything that you didn't um foresee that was like man that was tough to get through or or now you could advise others on i i can't think of any no uh, i think when don adams at the university of nebraska i mean that was the first university that actually took some university cattle and calved in march and calved in, in late may they you know they reported that they were getting a well, and I'll back up, but they they reported they were they were their conception rates were going down, and you know myself and all of my friends that did the same thing, we never saw that. I mean, conception rates went up. Mm -hmm. the, the one disadvantage that I saw immediately from calving, you know, the tenth of April to the first of May, uh, our cows at that time had too much milk. And mm -hmm. uh, we didn't know it in April, but if you're calving on green grass, you know, you're going to blow out those bags. Yeah. And, and, I, and I've heard people say, well, you know, I went back to April calving because that's, I said, you, you, you learned the wrong lesson. You know, get rid of those high milking cows. We don't need that high, high of milk to raise a calf, but and it's going to show up in a May calving, green grass calving. So mm -hmm. that's probably the only negative I remember. Yeah, and I I remember when we we largely custom graze, and we had a set of cattle in that were calving later. And uh, Lori Lassiter was on the ranch, and I told him that problem, and he said, "Well, you know, they have an operation for that." And I said, "Oh, really? You know, for for big bag cows?" He says, "Yeah, you cut the cow's head off." Yeah. He yeah. said, "Basically, you just you know, nature's going to select against that, so you just have to you just have to help nature and." and be selective um yeah so the question here is can we go over the numbers um 
as far as weaning lighter calves. And uh, I know that's something that I remember when I was at the SRM uh, class that you had some PowerPoints with the visuals of like the truck load of calves, lightweight calves versus heavy calves and something kind of along those lines. If you can at least touch on that conceptually kit of, okay. of the profitability side. Yeah, that, that was another thing that I threw into my pr presentations back when I was given a lot of them was what Don Palmer experienced. You know, so I would stop my presentation and I would ask, what do you think? Do you think they were weaning smaller calves when they moved from March to May? And I says, this isn't a trick question. Uh, a lot of times when you ask that to people that have done that, they'll say, no, there was no change, but that's usually not true. Uh, but Palmer said, yes, they were weaning smaller calves. I'm not gonna throw out numbers. I don't remember numbers. Uh, the fact is they were weaning smaller calves, but they weren't that much smaller. In my mind, I thought, okay, we're going to have a whole herd of dinks running around out there. Nobody, I can, can't sell. That's not true. The calves were not much smaller than they were before, but the power, the powerful message there is that even though they were weaning smaller calves, they were weaning more total pounds of calves. And you just have to think about it a little bit. Okay, why is that? Well, you know, less sickness and less death loss, less less storms. You know, as I know, you know, one April storm can take half your calf crop. You have no no way of saving those calves in a, that kind of a storm. So, you know, if you can wean more total pounds, uh, and and if the calves are smaller, and this kind of goes to the two truck trucks, but uh, which would you rather have a truckload of 400 pound calves? or a truckload of 600 pound calves. Both trucks weigh 50,000 pounds. And most ranchers back in the day, I mean, I could get in a fist fight over that question real quick. I mean, forget the arrows, <laughs> they, they just got mad. Uh -huh. And, and it's, the problem is that they worked for decades trying to get up to those 600 pound calves. And I said, now, wait a minute. You want 50,000 pounds of 600 pound calves or 50,000 pounds of 400 pound calves, which truck's worth the most? Year in and year out, the calves with the 400 pound calves are gonna be worth at least $20,000 more than the truck with the 600 pound calves. And that's just one truckload. Mm -hmm. And it's the same way with the Palmers. They're re re weaning more calves, more total pounds that are smaller per calf and getting more paid more per pound for it. So, it becomes kind of a no-brainer that, uh, but it becomes a problem to those that have been working all their life to do what you said you shouldn't do. Yeah, as it's the old timers would say, you know, a a light live calf is worth a lot more than a dead big calf. So, yeah. um, sometimes those uh, getting those heavy weaning weights, they're they're definitely come with the cost. Um, There's talk a, a huge cost, and we we'll, we might get into that later. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about um, kind of cow efficiency and how that plays into profitability kit. Because I know first first of all, the, do you do you do EPDs on your bulls? EPDs, yes. And what what do you target? What what do you measure on that side? 
I mean, we have registered cattle. We sell about a thousand bulls a year. Uh, we have a sale in Texas, Alabama, Missouri, Nebraska, Montana, and two in Colorado. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of our cattle, red and black, are red and black Angus. They are registered. They do have EPDs. EPDs, you know, I learned early. They kind of came into existence back in the 1970s. So when I started raising cattle on my own in the 80s, you know, that that's what we were doing. We we had EPDs for weaning weight, yearling weight, birth, you know, milk. And the human tendency is, you know, this bull is better than this bull because he's got more, more a higher EPD. Well, that's the reason the whole industry went downhill is because EPDs work. It's the greatest tool in the world, but improperly used. It's, it's going to t- it's going to increase your weaning weights. It's going to increase your cow size. It's going to decrease your stocking rates. It's going to decrease your profits. You know, it works. Uh, I like to show, you know, we, we have a quick sort where we can sort bulls at all of our bull sales. I've got three of them coming up and I don't, I don't publicly talk about this, but I am today, I guess. I assume that your audience can take it, Yeah. but you know, I, when I say I don't pay much attention to the weaning weights or yearling weights, the 205s, the EPDs, you know, I, I, I don't pay much attention to that because if I did, you know, I, we just tend to select for the wrong things. But let's, let's take the Angus bulls, all of the Angus bulls, every one of them that we're selling in three bull sales this spring are going to be, I, you know, I think they're in the top 20% for birth weight and calving most of them are going to be in the top 10%. All of them are in the top 5%. All but one of them are in the top 5% for dollar EN or maintenance centers. Meaning that, you know, for low maintenance cattle, we're in the top 5% of the entire Angus breed. And then when I have somebody that's uh, able to take, take what I'm going to show him, every Angus bull we're selling is in the bottom 5% of the breed for weaning weight and yearling weight. And bottom ten or twenty percent for milk. Huh. And yet, you know, one I don't know how many of your audience has received our newsletters and emails, but it's very common for somebody to go to our low maintenance bulls after using high growth bulls, and they come back and say, you know, our weaning weights are higher than they were last year huh. because our genetics fit their environment. You know, the high growth of genetics don't fit any environment except a feedlot. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're weaning as big or bigger calves. We're just putting that weight in a little different package. Uh, before you know it, you know, now you've got a bunch of thicker, easier flushing, low maintenance cows. Uh, with the right size and type of cow, every rancher, almost every rancher I know of can increase stocking rate by about 30%. And that's just with genetics. Then you throw in, you know, gra- you know, a grazing system of some sort, having in sync with nature. You know, every time you're doing something correct, you're going to, you know, you're going to increase your stocking rate. Uh, from the very beginning, when everybody else was trying to get weaning weights bigger and bigger and bigger, I, I with the help of Chip Hines and others, I said that that doesn't make sense. You know, we don't need bigger calves; we need more pounds per acre. So we're in the grass business. We have 
10,000 acres of grass out there, how do we maximize the pounds per acre instead of pounds per cow? And it's, they're almost dis, distinct opposites. The, uh, when you're still trying to go from 400 pound to 500 pound to 600 pound weaning weights, you are always going to increase cow size. You can't help it. You know, cow size have, has increased uh, by 40%, probably more than that now, 40% in the last 50 years. Mm. And yet profit has not increased. I mean, cow weights increased, weaning weights increased, uh, but profit is not increasing. You know, as, as long as we're trying to maximize pounds per cow, we're not going to pay much attention to our grazing management. We're not going to worry about calving season because those early calves always weigh more. Uh, everything just kind of works works against you. And in the long run, pounds per acre is what's going to keep you in business. That's really good. So tell talk a little bit about what your ideal cow looks like phenotypically. Uh I, I don't like to talk about weight that much, but weight, weight's a factor. But uh, I'm going to talk more about frame score because, as I show, showed in a recent email, I think two weeks ago, two red cows standing side by side, both red cows weigh the exact same. Both red cows are the same age. Both red cows had, calve, had, had calved 60 days prior to this picture. One cow was short and fat, the other cow was tall and thin, but they all had the same same weight, same everything. One cow at 60 days after calving was ready to breed back, the other cow was not gonna breed back this year. You know, mm -hmm. so weight without body condition score and or frame is meaningless to me. You know, I, I could talk to a hundred producers and they all have 11 or 1200 pound cows, and that's usually true until they sell the cows and then find out, well, maybe they have some 1400 pound cows. Yeah. But frame size is, you know, uh, it's highly correlated to low maintenance. So we're looking at three to four frame cows that weigh, if you want to talk about weight in Colorado, these three and four frame cows weigh 1150 to 1250. I mean, they're not dwarfs. There's just more cow there and less legs. Mm-hmm. Our herds in Texas and Missouri in the southeast, uh, the same three and four frame cows will not weigh as much simply because of the, the environment. Our herds in the you know Montana, North Dakota, the same three and four frame cows are going to weigh more. You know, that that's a that's just the environment telling you what what we need to have. You know, in, in South Texas, a three or four frame cow, you know, most of the year she needs to get rid of body heat. So she needs to have a large surface area for and and not not that much uh, mass, so she can get rid of that heat. So the same same cow, if I move her to Colorado, she's going to get thicker. She's mm -hmm. going to have, you know, she's going to fill up that uh, that sur uh, surface area because she's trying to maintain hold her heat during the winter time. So I'm look looking at a cow with a. Uh, you know, when I look at a side view of a cow, I, I, a mature cow, I want to see two thirds of her height in body, one third in leg. Yeah. 
And, and when you look at uh, the Angus Journal or anything else that everybody else has out there, you know, there's total opposites of that. I mean, there's two thirds leg and one third body. And, you know, those cattle will not last in any environment other than a feedlot. Uh, I like to see a wedge-shaped cow and wedge-shaped bull. Uh, when I look at a cow from the side or from the top, I want her to be wedge-shaped, getting deeper and deeper as we go back and getting wider and wider as we look down on the top. That's a wedge-shaped cow. Uh, the industry has their view of what a perfect market steer looks like. He looks like a rectangle. And yeah. because that perfect market steer looks like a rectangle, a lot of breeders think, well, that's what my cow and bull should look like is a rectangle. And that's, that's totally wrong. That's just going to produce subfertile animals. Mm-hmm. A bull is going to be wedge-shaped from the rear to the back or a front, uh, you know, narrow, widen the shoulder, narrow in the hip, you know, that sort of thing. That doesn't mean he doesn't have any muscle. That just means that he's, he's massive in the front end and looks like a bull mm-hmm. and people look at those bulls and say you man I, you can't use that on heifers and i say you know he didn't look that way the day he was born that, that's that's testosterone working there a bull should look like a bull a cow should look like a cow yeah so yeah. three and four frame cow I, I i maybe need to go a little bit further the industry at this point, at one point it was even bigger, but at this point, I'd say 98% of the bulls being sold are five five to seven frame. Therefore, most cow herds are five to seven frame. Now that doesn't tell you anything about their weight. They may not weigh as much as my three three frame cows, but my three frame cows can get by on a lot less. Yeah, makes sense. Um, is there any um challenge with going with the smaller frame selling into the commodity market i think when you're direct marketing those easy fleshing uh cattle especially if you're finishing on grass you know we'll we'll buy those all day because that's what we really want for us um but in the commodity market are they catching up to that or is there still kind of a a disparity there between what works for the rancher and what works for the uh, pro- probably what works for the rancher is going to work for the stalker operator, but not for the, on feed the feed, not for the feedlot, right? I, I think there there may always be a disparity, uh, you know, and, and I have new customers come to me, and I mean they're they're terrified thinking I'm going to produce a, they're, they're going to buy my bulls and produce a bunch of midgets. And that's not the case. I mean, if you look at our three and four frame cows that weigh 1200 pounds, they're not midgets. Mm-hmm. We have three and four frame bulls that weigh a ton, 1800 to 2200 pounds. That's not a midget. Most five frame bulls cannot weigh that much on grass alone. So, you know, we're, we're dealing with big animals. Uh, so they're, they're, they get, worried about that and i say you know we've been selling over a thousand bulls a year for many years we're we're telling people you can double your stocking or bull cow to bull ratio with our bulls you know if the industry says 25 we're saying 50. Mm. Uh, and because our bulls are developed on grass and not grain and because they're low input you know 
I would say our bulls probably last twice as long as most bulls and they breed twice as many cows. So I, I, I the naysayer, I say, how many calves is that? You know, calculate that out. And where are those calves going? Nearly all of them are going through the sale barn, the feedlot, and the packing plant. Yeah. You know, there, there's not that many grass finishers out there. But if you are grass finishing, you know, what we have, what works the best in, in the branch pasture works the best for grass finishing. If you are feeding your own steers in a feedlot, you're going to love what our genetics can do. But if you're a custom feedlot, they want just the opposite of what I want. You know, they, they want something that's that's got a lot of growth in it. It's a, it's a lean, it's a late maturing uh, type of animal that grows and grows and grows before it gets fat. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why we have 1600 pound steers coming out of the feedlot, but we cannot take his, that steer's sister and make her work anywhere. So there's gonna be a, a, a you know, a discrepancy. Uh, I've, you know, I just don't see any of our customers saying, you know, I went too far, I gotta go back. Yeah. You know, we just don't see that. It, but that is that is a major concern if you're, if you just think of, you know, for the average person to think about it, uh, we just don't think it's worth worrying about. It's not what the feedlot guy wants. If you're feeding your own, you'll make lots of money. Yeah. Okay, I appreciate you going there because I know that has been a concern. Uh, Michael asked a quick question here. Um, uh, what? How do you measure your frame score? He says sometimes he gets different measurements running the same cow through the chute. Um, I don't know if there needs to be a little more context to that, but basically it's just a height measurement. Yeah, frame score is height adjusted to age. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Cattle don't get reach maturity till age four or five. At that point, their frame score shouldn't change much. Mm-hmm. But on you know on our eighteen month old bulls that we're selling, grass developed bulls, uh, that's probably the one thing when we're evaluating and weighing and measuring bulls. That's that's the hardest hardest measurement to get, simply because if it just a little bit of slouching down or standing up or whatever can change that by two inches. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we teach our guys that are doing that. We've got a frame, frame uh, height, uh, altitude stick, I think it's called. It's shaped like a, an L, upside down L. So it's got a little level up there. You put it on the ground at the same height as the feet. You put it over the back above the hip bones and you try to level that, that, uh, le- that bubble in the level. Uh, but we'll wor- work. I mean, we'll look and see how he's standing. Uh, you know, we just don't, it's not something you grab real quick, like a weight. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Whoever asked that is right. I mean, an untrained person could run the same animal through the shoot 10 times and probably get eight different measurements. Mm-hmm. Okay. We, just, we, we use that as part of the formula we use to create our, uh, a grass efficiency score. So that's, uh, that's, it's real critical for us to make sure it's correct. Yeah. Good, good question. Thank you for that. Uh, maybe just to shift gears here a little bit and, um, and may, maybe even get a little philosophical here. Um, sometimes I know you like to do that, but um, it's more on the principles of profit. 
just what, as you uh, travel around the country and even around the world, and you look at other people's operations kit and you are somewhat of in a, in a consulting role as you send bulls throughout the, um, at least North America and probably even throughout the world. What, what principles do you see that are applicable regardless of the environment that when applied will lead to increased profitability on a farmer ranch? Well, the, the paradigm, I mean, since the 1970s and it accelerated in the 80s and 90s, you know, the paradigm to, to succeed is to increase weaning weights. That has not changed. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, outside of our, our network of customers, every, every place I go, I mean, they, even if they've been taught, they can't quit. You know, give them two bulls. One bull has more growth, a higher growth EPD than another bull. What are they going to pick? And in, in our program, we don't brag about this, but every Angus bull in our program is in the bottom 5% of the breed for growth. That's what works. It's not that that's what we picked, selected for. We just, you know, for 30 years, we've been selecting for cattle that can do the most with the least. And we want to increase stocking rate. We want to increase pounds per acre. Uh, after after you put more and more pressure on there, take the you know take the feed away, add cows. You know, stop vaccinating, stop pouring on, stop all this other stuff that we don't really need to do. That's the type of cow that comes about. But to answer your question, I think nearly everybody is still in that old paradigm where they want to increase pounds per cow. Ironically, and this is Dr. Uh, David Lawman in, in Stillwater, Oklahoma. I mean, he's done a lot of research and says since 2000, 20, 2001, there has been no increase in weeding weights since then in the commercial uh, herd. Uh. So, you know, we, we kept increasing weaning weights and kept increasing cow weights at the same time. But he says, we're still increasing cow weights, but we stopped increasing weaning weights. Your environment cannot increase anymore. Nobody's environment can go that high. So, you know, that's a, and yet most people are still going to choose high growth over low growth because they can't stop thinking that. They're going to choose high, high milk over low milk. You know, milk is a, the worst trait to have. The EPD doesn't really mean much, but, uh, there's not a herd in North America, including Mexico and Canada, that needs more milk. I just have not seen it. Mm -hmm. They all they all have too much because they're selecting for bigger anyway. So if I if we can get people to get over that hump, this is the toughest paradigm most ranchers are ever going to face: is the difference between increasing production per cow and increasing production per acre. Once you get over that hump, it, it's all plain. It's easy to make money. That's, that's when you say, okay, what else can we do? Well, calving in sync with nature is going to increase pounds per acre. Uh, rotational grazing is going to increase pounds per acre. You know, it, it's uh, kind of a combination of, you know, genetics and grazing and, and calving and, you know, just management principles that are geared towards that thought. That's great. So that was 
I was going to ask that question. What should you measure? So you're saying one one measurement that correlates with profitability would be measuring production uh, per acre. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Are you talking about um, you're not talking about dry matter production, but how many your stock? Uh, well, you, you you probably have to be talking about dry matter production at the same time, but you know if I can run more cows on the same acre producing more calves, uh, you know the difference between a six frame cow and a three frame cow that six frame cow will never wean half of her body weight. She can't mm -hmm. do it. I mean, unless you just run the silage truck to her all the time, that yeah. three frame cow can wean fifty percent of her weight year after year after year. Uh, so the fact that smaller cows can wean a higher percentage of their own weight without eating as much, I mean, it, it, it all kind of starts piling in there and you, you, you uh, but I, I don't have any exact figures. I mean, people want me to say, okay, <laughs> look at this ranch and I, nobody really measures pounds per acre. Uh, the reason EPDs work so well is because they're so easy to measure. You know, it's easy to measure birth weight. It's easy to measure weaning weight. It's easy to measure yearling weight. Anything that's easy to measure is always going to go too far. You know, I had a discussion with uh, some people in our discussion group recently about testicle size. Same thing. You, you know, how, how big does it need to be to service 50 cows? You know, do we need a wheelbarrow behind that bull to keep them to keep them off the ground? You know, it's easy to measure, and therefore we've gone too far. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, the another question here from the chat is: calving and sink only available using feral bulls, or could this be done with? Um, or could you do this program and calve in sync with what is already on the ranch? You know, everybody knows the answer to that. Yeah. It doesn't matter what the genetics are. I mean, whatever you have for genetics or cows, uh, what's going to happen, though, is if you have high milk in uh, genetics, just like I said, I had, I had way more milk than I needed, and it showed when I went from April to May, I just have to bite the bullet and get rid of those high, high milk genetics. But Whatever you have, you need to start. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I, something else just popped into my mind. I'm sure you've uh, dealt with Stan Parsons when he was still here and alive. Yeah, maybe not. Anyway, I, I was in a meeting with Stan once and somebody, we were talking about calving in sync with nature. And they were saying, well, you know, how, and I hear this all the time. You know, they moved from February calving to March calving to April calving. I said, well, you're almost there. What's taking so long? And uh, Stan, Stan dealt with that question. He says, uh, have you ever been water skiing? So, I, you know, I'm just, I'll just throw this out at you. You know, have you, have you been water skiing? And you'll say, yeah, I, I've, I've yeah. done a little bit. And I'm going to say, well, next summer after the, all this snow melts, I'm going to come to Nevada and I'm going to, I want you to take me water skiing. I've never been skiing before. And you're going to take me to the lake. You're going to, you know, tell me what to do back there. It takes me forever to get my skis on and, and lined up. And then I holler up there and I said, drive slow because this is my first time. How's that going to work? Not at it's all. It's not going to work. You know, and that's 
when you move from February calving to March to April, you know, you're never going to get on top of the water till you get on top of the water. It's you're just sucking water. And, and I don't see any reason to uh, put it off. But yeah, to answer the, the original question, no matter what cows you have, move. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and it's not, I, I, I appreciate what you said. And there's been some other comments from the Facebook post is in sync with nature is not a date on the calendar because it can vary so much from one part of the country to another. So uh, a friend of ours is in Dixie Valley, Nevada and the antelope have their young there in February and March, they get green up there a lot earlier than we do. And so for him, they calve a lot earlier, but they're still in sync with nature. Right. Uh, for us, and that, that's what we I saw in, in Chihuahua, which I was surprised. We visited five ranches down there. All of them have been in, involved in holistic management, and uh, you know, I I I was just shocked that okay, in sync with nature. There is late late July, but it yeah. Is. Because it's it's not it's not that they deal with snow there. It's just when they're green. When, you get, when you get your rain. Yeah. And, and I had a a lot of people on fescue. Your audience may not know what an endified infected fescue is. Some do. East, eastern Kansas all the way to the uh, Atlantic Ocean is taken over. It hasn't been around that long, but it pushed everything else out. And so I, I've kind of said, okay, in sync with nature and or your forage resources. So calving in sync with your forage resources on fescue is fall calving. Mm -hmm. The worst time to calve in, in fescue country is probably May because that, that fescue gets so toxic, you know, it, it increases the cow's body temperature by about two degrees when it's already hot. Mm -hmm. She's not going to breed. So in sync with nature some places isn't going to make sense you have to be in sync with your forage resources good point but kit from a from a management philosophy side um what would you say has made the the biggest difference for you in transitioning to um the point where you're at where now you know, I think it's safe to say you are profitable. You are um, in, having an impact within the industry. And, uh, you know, you're definitely somebody who others can look to and follow. Um, and any, anything that hasn't been mentioned that comes to mind, maybe even from a, from a, from a mindset side or from a, a building the right team or, Things along those lines, Kit. I, I don't know. You know the 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 paradigm of pounds per acre and pounds per cow. Anybody, once you get over that, make that shift, things become easier. Uh, I think the fact that uh, I don't mind going against the status quo because it needs it. I don't mind being different from everybody else. You know, I, I can think I can think back to when we started out as a commercial rancher. And as soon as I got to seeing what everybody else was doing, trying to get, get as big as they could, as fast as they could, I said, here's a great opportunity. Somebody needs to do the right thing. 
So we got into into seed stock, you know, registered seed stock production. Uh, I, I think you need to be persistent, but I, I've all often thought, and I see a lot of new new people getting into the bull business, and most of them are not going to last five years. I mean, that's just that's a rule of thumb that you can take to the bank. Mm. And the reason they aren't is because they're they're trying to mimic one of the big guys that's doing everything wrong. You know, and I, I think back at that time, you know, I was I did everything the opposite of what the industry is doing. And had I not done that, I wouldn't have been a success today. I was antagonistic within the industry. I still am. Uh, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but uh, we used the concept of being a herd quitter. I mean, I was a herd quitter before I even came up with that 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 word but uh you can't succeed in any business if you're doing things just like everybody else mm-hmm. but being different doesn't mean you're going to succeed either you have to be different for the right reasons and i, I think that's just i i never i never thought i was i never questioned what we were doing as you know i always thought okay i'm right status quo is wrong and eventually they're going to come to come our direction. And that's happened. Uh, you know, the reason we went from selling six bulls, you know, in 1991 to over a thousand bulls a year. Now, somebody believes in what we're doing and it's working. But I, it would have been real easy to just to throw my hands up and say, I'm going to go do, do something else. I couldn't do that. I, I believe too, too much in what I was doing to walk away. Yeah. Well, we appreciate that you've had the fortitude to stick with it because it's not, I'm sure, has not been an easy road. And uh, with what we're doing. I enjoyed it, though. I mean, it wasn't a hard road for me. It would have been hard for, you know, if my wife took that personally. It'd be hard for people like a lot of people, but it wasn't hard for me. Yeah, that's good. So do you feel like that was maybe part of your God-given mission to to do what you do and have a yeah. I think that so. for change. Definitely. You know, we, we send out a weekly devo- uh, devotion and, you know, those who receive that are going to say, you know, this guy, he's, he's, he sees things differently. And I do. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we took what Jesus started as a church and we've created, we've created monsters that uh, shouldn't be around. Yeah. So maybe talk just a little bit. One of the one of our passions with Ag Steward, hence the name Steward, is stewardship. And from from your perspective or a biblical perspective, what does that mean to you, Kit, to be a steward? I don't guess I, I, I write about it sometimes, but I don't think or talk about it much. Uh, I'm you and I are stewards because it's not really ours. We've been given the responsibility to take care of it to make it better, to pass it on to the next generation, those sort of things. I, that's To me, that's what steward, stewardship is. Yeah. I, I yeah. mean, I, I didn't, it's not me, it's a, belongs to God. And, you know, if I can, if I can improve on what I was handed, then, you know, I think I've, I've done, done what I should have done. Amen. I definitely concur with that. That's, how I view it as well is that we're, we're just temporary stewards here. And, um, 
it's our not only our privilege but also our obligation to to manage the best way that we can these stewardships that we've been given including god's uh the creatures the livestock the land our fellow brothers and sisters our fellow man our families and the knowledge that we've been given because if uh if we don't utilize the knowledge that we've been given, just like anything else um, in the parable of the talents, it will be taken from us. It'll be given to somebody else who will use it, who will who will take it and and um, appreciate it and share it. So that's my goal with with Ag Stewart is to continue to do that and bring you the opportunities to learn from some great people like Kit. I'm going to drop in the chat here. A few of you last time filled out the um, the assessment and invite you to do that again. Um, it's been great to reach out to some individuals and learn more about their operations. And sometimes having that perspective of somebody looking over the fence and being able to see where your strengths and weaknesses are can be very valuable. So that's what we're offering with this assessment is just uh, an opportunity to to fill out some basic information and and book a call with us to see where you're at and maybe where your opportunities are, the current challenges that you might be facing. Because the problem is sometimes we don't see them when they're right in front of us. And I know I've been guilty of that. It's taken somebody who says, hey, have you thought about this? Or Jared, you know, this habit keeps occurring in your life. Why is that? You know, why do you keep running into debt? Why do you keep relying on that? Why um, Why is it that you consistently run out of grass before you run out of year? Um, and so... Sometimes we we create our own paradigms, which create uh, a fence around us and that doesn't allow us to progress. Question here, when calving in May, when are you weaning? I always get that question, and I don't think it matters. You know, we, we want to have so something locked into where, okay, grandpa always calved in this month, grandpa always weaned in this month, it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, I may wean in, in 90 days if I'm in a severe drought. I may leave and have left the heifer calves on their mothers for 10 months when we've got adequate uh, stockpiled forage. Doesn't matter. You know, just uh, we need to start using our head and not the calendar. Tax planning screws up some good ranching, too. Yeah. You know, it, we, we need to have freedom freedom from a lot of things but i would say so that the most profitable people that do the, the these guys are lazier than i am you know they they calve in may and june they won't wean their calves until right before calving in may and june again like march and april they run those little starved out calves on grass and then they explode and then they can you know compensatory gain will you know, you leave them on those cows all winter, they're not gaining much. They're working as hard as a cow is to just survive. But compensatory grain gain when you get green grass, you know, it, it, they just explode. Uh, cows that lose weight in the wintertime explode when they get green grass. Uh, but at that point, you know, you can get that, you can catch up by the end of summer and, and throw them in a feedlot or uh, sell them or yeah. take those little you know those calves off their mothers at 10 months of age there's a huge demand in the spring for grass grass cattle you know if you don't have the forages to 
get the compensatory gain, you'll get paid for it because they can see a green calf compared to a calf that's been fed all winter. Yeah, good, good question. So along with that, you said you kept your heifers on, and I know there's been a lot of talk. Um, Alan Williams was a speaker on a podcast, and Steve Campbell um, has been one of our guests talking about epigenetics. Um, can you can you speak to that a little bit of having the value of the the heifer raised in that environment? Well, from a lazy man point of view, you know, if that calf is with his mother, I'm not having to worry about it. I don't have to go to another place to break water or feed or whatever. Uh, if the ground's covered up with snow and we're grazing grass through the snow, that calf will learn how to eat snow for water just because that's what his mother's doing. So, you know, from that perspective, it just makes sense from an epigenetics uh, perspective. And I, you know, I, I, I can't quote all the figures, but calves that have been left on their mothers until naturally weaned at 10 months, their rumen is going to be 15% more efficient than calves that are weaned early. Now, over a period of time, you know, that's, that's huge. I mean, I just, you've got females going back into your herd and steers going to the feedlot, but uh, the, the rumen is that much more efficient. Yeah, that's um, hard to put a measurement on on the value of that, right? But um, I have a question. Yeah, thanks for jumping uh, on the head. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I just have a real small sheep operation and I've, I know this isn't a sheep webinar, but um, I was curious because our sheep are seasonal breeders. We've just kind of experimented with letting them breed up and self wean. And we run into the problem of whether we should try to sell yearlings or sell them early or sell them later because we'll have to overwinter um, because we're we can pull it off that we can sell lambs in the same year that they're born when you can't necessarily do that with calves but I'm just curious what uh, your thoughts are on that process and how you make a decision with ha having to buy hay versus um, breeding earlier or later and we can sell calves the same year they were born a lot, a lot of ranchers do. I mean, they're born in the spring. They're, they're sold in the fall. So that that's uh, in in my decision making, though, I I have to look at my forage resources. I I don't think if our whole program is based upon feeding hay every year, it's going to be hard to make a living. So, you know, if I've got stockpiled dormant forage for whatever to eat, you know, I'd, I'd be more likely to keep them. But uh, if you base your whole program on on uh, buying hay and feeding hay a certain number of months, it's just tough. I, I don't, we got to get over that. Yeah, and that's like Jim Garish is going to be our next speaker. For those of you who are on now, the information will be going out, but that's one of his mantras is, you know, get the hay out, kick the hay habit. I think he wrote a book about it. Yeah, and, uh, those direct costs of of substitute feed, as they teach in ranching for profit, not supplemental feed, um, or what what kills profit. So, yeah. um, it's a quick 
question here. Um, are you doing any grass-fed programs with your cattle? We we have, I don't know how many customers, how many of our customers are doing that, but that, that's become a, a bigger and bigger event with our customers. Uh, we don't do it right now. Uh, well, we do. I mean, our open heifers are, I mean, we send them to be finished or we, we finish them ourselves. Two or three years ago, we, we cactus feeders in Texas came to us because Tyson Food, the big packer, said we want a source of domestic grass-fed beef, no hormones, no antibiotics. And uh, so cactus came to us, you know, for that source. And for a couple of years, we were, we were doing a program through cactus for Tyson. Mm-hmm. Uh I thought that was going to change the world, but Tyson changed his mind and started promoting fake meat. So, uh, yeah, I never had a contract with Tyson Foods, but you, you know, our genetics, when we talk about grass efficiency, we're talking about early maturity, easy fleshing, low maintenance. That type of animal is what I need in my heifers to, uh, okay, they, they need to stop growing up and start putting on fat. Because if if they if they're still trying to meet make their maintenance requirements, they're not putting on fat and they're not going to breed. Now the exact same animal is going to perform outstanding in a grass finish program. Uh, it's not the type of animal. Again, the feedlots prefer late maturing, hard keeping uh, animals that just keep growing without putting on fat. Yeah. So we've we've actually bought some of Kit's genetics from uh, from a fellow rancher here, um, and finished them on grass, and they do really well. You know, just real moderate frame, easy fleshing, and that's that's what us grass finishers want all day. So, if anybody out there has um, heiferets, especially after this tough winter, that are similar genetics, um, we'd definitely be a buyer for those because that's that's what we look for is you know an, an open heifer an open two-year-old heifer that'll finish this season or three-year-old um, yeah or even three-year-olds some sometimes our buyers they'll ding us if it's over 36 months but i for our own customers yeah we'll go up to four years and still still cut them and not grind them so yeah heifers are easier to finish than steers and if they're open two-year-olds or three-year-olds they've got the age to they're just ready to finish now yeah they're, they're already done growing and ready to so so yeah that's 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 what's neat about kits genetics um is they really do work on grass and it's not not that they don't work in the other environment but uh but on the ranch side they're the kind that'll make you money so question here from the willamette valley it gets muddy to say the least i'd love some input on running mother cows through wet muddy winter it seldom freezes the mud solid it's my experience the grass doesn't stockpile well um in the wet any suggestions and if you want to jump very little experience with mud (laughs) you'd like to see mud probably huh yeah we're, we're in a 12 to 14 inch rainfall area uh, we're still in a major drought. I would, you know, we've had a couple of snows, but man, we could use what you guys are dealing with. Uh, so I don't, you know, I can see that being a huge problem. I don't guess I would have a, a solution to it. You know, the, the, 
grazing people are going to say move faster you know more paddocks more faster move you know and uh i think you know that makes sense to me yeah yeah definitely if you want to reach out like we can we can kind of help you through that i mean my thought is is you know do you have hillsides do you have other places where you can get up and stockpile feed um but uh i'm not super familiar with the Willamette Valley, but I do know some other places in Oregon that are similar. What is Kit Farrell's best way to understand and learn about weather and climate? Does he watch the NOAA acronym weather webinars uh, for regions of the USA? I'm actually not a rancher, but our family was and is, I'm considering it, <laughs> but it was Midwestern ranching, cold Charlet, finishing lots of beef. And I, I'm an ecologist and I'm a scientist and a park ranger naturalist. I, I don't have any practical experience and I'm not doing it, but I am considering it. I'm actually considering um, doing this. So the thing I'm asking is, is that I follow NOAA and I follow climate and weather. My thesis was on sea level rise. I'm an East Coast person and the East Coast is going through just to give you a continental look and scope of this thing is we're in neutral and previously a triple dip La Nina. Now we're going to El Nino. And just today, the Eastern region presented that um, that means that the Eastern coast Atlantic is going to get more storms and precipitation. It is currently in D1 to do D2 drought, which is sort of like weird because we get like 60 inches of rain. You know, we shouldn't be in that. So I'm thinking, well, that's kind of useful to keep up with that. So I was wondering, my grandfather, Dowell, um, the rancher guy, <laughs> I don't know if you call it rancher here in central Illinois, but he um, he listened to the weather report and we would visit and whew, that's what you heard, you know, pounds, how many, you know, just like bushels of soybeans, bushels of corn, how much those cattle were making and uh, what was the weather report for today? We're going to go out and look at his fields and his his herds. And it was just really interesting. You know, there are, uh, when, when we are farmers and ranchers, what are the three things we talk about when we get together? <laughs> weather, market, government. Yes. Out of any of those, can we, do we have any effect on them? No. Not 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 directly not today you, you know so i i don't uh i'm going to watch the drought monitor map but probably as much as anything else i i can't affect or you know change what's what's going on i can plan and work with what's going on and and i think the reason we like to talk about the weather and the market and the government is because we can't do anything about it and that that uh keeps us if we can blame the government or the weather or the market we don't have to change anything so i see that as being a cop-out for nearly everybody in agriculture you know what you have is what you have now i'm not saying don't don't plan ahead you have to plan ahead but if I, if i have 70 paddocks of grass that i'm rotating my cows through I should be able to tell you how long that grass is going to last before I have to sell cows or move cows. You know, that's, that's what I do. I can't make it rain. Uh, I don't even want to know about all that stuff. I just need to take care of what I can control. 
pretty good philosophy, Kit. I, I appreciate that. Thanks, Vaughn, for the question. Any uh, final comment that you have, Kit, before we jump off? No, it's been fun. It's uh, I, I, I have all this stuff rolling around up here. It's nice to let it out once in a while. Well, we're we're great to be grateful to be on the receiving end of some of that. So oh, I, I will will say that we do mail out weekly PCC updates, weekly devotions. You know, if anybody's not receiving those and would like to, just go to our website, payrollcattle.com, and there should be places there to sign up. Yep, and you've got some bull sales coming up like next week, right? Next, next Monday in uh, Texas, next Thursday in Missouri, and then we come back to our Colorado sale. Okay. Um, yeah, so probably the best thing, Fawn, is just go to the Faro Cattle Company website and um, and and then reach out. Um, Kit's great about responding, and uh, sure appreciate that he was willing to jump on so feralcattle.com willing to jump on this webinar we're honored to have him as our guest um if you if you like this and want to stay in tuning with what we're doing with ag steward we encourage you to do that agsteward.fyi is our information and um look forward to seeing you on future webinars kit thank you so much for taking thank you for asking us okay have a blessed day everybody take care Thanks for joining us on the Profitable Steward Podcast. Want to learn more about making your enterprise more profitable? Check out Ag Steward on our website, www.agsteward.fyi. Here at Ag Steward, we're working hard to make sure you have the latest tools and knowledge from the field of regenerative agriculture. Subscribe to our podcast to keep up with the latest info and help us spread the word by giving this video a thumbs up sharing this information with other farmers, and as always, please join the conversation by leaving us a rating and a review so we can help you to keep growing strong.